Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday morning service. Uh, particularly if you're with us for the first time, uh, either online or in the building, it's great to, to have you with us. If you've never been to a service in the church building before, you'd like to attend, um, then do please uh, get in touch with the church office and we can send you the Zoom link and it'd be great to, to actually meet you in person. Pleased to welcome uh, Saab and Karen Clare with us uh, this morning. Uh, Saab will be preaching for us, continuing in our series in, uh, in 1 Peter. And we'll also be interviewing him during the service, so you'll have a chance to get to know him a little bit. Uh, but also later on this afternoon at 4 o'clock, we're going to have a Zoom call where you'll have the chance to ask your questions uh, to Zab, your, Zab yourself. So do please join us uh, for that. Well, today is also Pentecost Sunday, when we celebrate the pouring out of the, the Holy Spirit on the disciples, just as Jesus had promised before he ascended to heaven. As the disciples were filled with the Spirit, they were given a new boldness to proclaim the gospel, a new vision of the, the glory of Christ, and a new desire in their hearts to be like him. In the book of Acts, we read the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Having condemned the Jewish leaders for killing Jesus, we read this. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And in our passage this morning from 1 Peter 4, we are told, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let's pray as we start our time together. Father God, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit and that your love has been poured out into our hearts through him. We thank you for his presence here with us this morning and pray that he would be teaching us, purifying us and empowering us to be more faithful witnesses for Christ. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit in the same way that Stephen was, that we might see Jesus in all his glory and have a vision for the whole earth filled with your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we could to find out a little bit more about Saab. So Saab, if you don't mind coming up, we're going to um, just ask you a couple of questions to find out um, a bit more about you and um, your background, your family, and I'm sure people are desperate to know more. So yeah, you come come up here. Um, first of all, you're here with your wife, Karen, so it's lovely to have Karen with us as well. Um, tell us, of, she's your best <laughs> fan, obviously. Uh, yes. uh, tell us about your family situation. Um, yep, and, uh, so Karen, uh, we've been married for just over 30 years. Uh, we have three children. Uh, we have a boy and then two girls. Uh, Jamie, who's married to Zoe, and we became grandparents a year ago, a little Florence. Congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Jamie's off to Wycliffe. He's going into, uh, into ordained ministry, and he's heading off there in September. Uh, then our eldest daughter, Laura, is, uh, how old is she? 26. 
26? 26. No? Eight-ish. Uh, 27. 27, thank you. Yeah. You'd never believe I was an accountant, would you? Uh, so she's 27. She's married to Micah, and she works at a law firm. She's not a lawyer, but she works at a law firm, and Micah works at uh, an accounting firm, and they both worship at uh, Globe Church in London, uh, which is a free church there. And then our youngest, Hannah, is engaged to be married to Elliot, who is... Uh, the son of uh, one of the church family here. And, uh, yeah, and they worship at All Souls uh, in Langham. So, yeah, that's us. Great. Thank you. Um, tell us about your journey to faith. I think you came to faith quite late in life in many ways. Tell us about that, that journey. How did God work in your life over those, those years? Yeah, so uh, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My parents are from the Punjab in, uh, in northern India. Uh, they came to the UK in uh, the late, uh, the late uh, 50s, early 60s, and they had us. Uh, I'm one of three boys. I'm the second of three a year either side. And um, our parents were secular Sikhs, so we would go to the temple on a Saturday, uh, but there was never really anything that happened in the temple that seemed to impact uh, our lives day to day. So uh, very much kind of a, a secular existence. And uh, when I was in my uh, early teens, my father had a really, really bad stroke, uh, and he was very badly disabled. And I remember uh, going upstairs and thinking, okay, if God's there, this is, this is his chance to shine. Uh, so I prayed, Lord, heal my father, um, and nothing happened. And, uh, you know, I'm a kind of scientist by, by background, and I just resolved, actually, you know, if he's, God can't do this or won't do this, then he, there is no God. So I went off to university uh, as a card-carrying atheist. And uh, my next door neighbour, or just one up from me uh, in my kitchen group, was a Christian, Mark. And he would faithfully and uh, diligently share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ with me. And, you know, I was uh, not that receptive, um, pushed back quite hard. We'd have lots of really good conversations, but never really progressed in the journey. And it was uh, the 80s. I don't know if any of, of you are old enough to remember that, but it was Thatcher's Britain. And it was a time where, uh, you know, you could uh, do whatever you wanted and achieve whatever you wanted. And, you know, we kind of drank deeply from that well, uh, went off in into, uh, into finance, and we worked, uh, Karen worked in the city, uh, I worked at a, an accounting firm in Guildford, and we kind of believed that you could have whatever you wanted, you know, you were in control, and you know, I worked at this firm in uh, Guildford, and we were accountants, and so we called ourselves the Guildford Accounting Society, GAS, because British Gas at the time, I don't know if any of you can remember, they, they used to have this really cheesy advert where... Uh, they, the strap line was, don't you just love being in control? And the guy would kind of lean into the camera and do this, and there'd be a British gas flame. And so we kind of adopted that for ourselves, you know, don't you just love being in control? Uh, and then, you know, Karen and I got married, and we had our first child, Jamie, who was born at 27 weeks, weighing two pounds. And you just realize, actually, you, you don't control anything. Uh, and the only people who had anything to say to us in that darkness were, were Christians, you know, all of our secular friends, it was just a case of, of bad luck. You think, wow, is that, is that really all it is? It's just luck. Uh, but, you know, uh, our Christian, people that we didn't even know, you know, there was a, the Christian nurses in the special care baby unit, you know, they offered us counsel, you know, there were uh, words from scripture. And we thought, wow, you know, what is it? What is it that these people have that in a season of trial, they've actually, they have something to say? 
Uh, a couple of years later, uh, our neighbours invited Karen around. She became a Christian to a course. Uh, talked to Karen about that later. Uh, she gave her life to Christ. And I noticed that, you know, there was kind of a change in Karen. There was a, uh, there was kind of a, there was a joy, there was a playfulness, uh, and there was like, wow, you know, what's happened? What is this Christianity thing? Uh, and then that kind of started me on a journey of, okay, what is, what is Christianity? And kind of being quite left-brained, it was, okay, let me try and work this out. I mean, I'm sure, you know, it's just a puzzle that we can, we can all fix. Uh, so I went on Alpha, I joined a skeptics group, um, you know, went along to church. Um, and desperately trying to work out what this Christian faith is. And, you know, I would uh, take the journey, I was working up in the city, and I would take the train up to town um, and the train back. And the highlight of my day was opening up God's Word and just sitting and reading and praying. And I'm sure if somebody had said to me at that time, you know, are you a Christian? I'd have said, well, no, I don't think I am. But, you know... It was, it was just, it was real soul food. It was a great nourishment. Uh, and I joined a church up in town, um, which was uh, St. Helens in Bishopsgate. And we'd go, you know, go along to the Bible studies and the, uh, and the talks during, uh, uh, during the lunchtime. And, you know, I was the guy that, were, you know, you kind of always want in your Bible study, right? The guy that's, uh, you know, done his prep. He's underlined the text. He's looked at the Greek. You know, he's kind of thought about the questions. Um, and my Bible study leader took me out one day and he said, uh, so, you know, tell me, so how long have you been a Christian? I said, I don't think I am. And he said, well, you know it's true, don't you? And it was kind of in that moment, suddenly, wow, it's true. And I don't know how many times people have told me that in the past, but it's like in that moment, it's true. And there were links going off, you know, oh my word, if it's true, then Christ really did rise from the dead. Well, if he really did rise from the dead, well, well that means that, you know, he really is the son of God. Well, what does that mean about scripture? What does that mean about my life? And it was, you know, just the most profound moment. Uh, and, and that was the point at which I kind of came to Christ. And I was uh, just thinking about the, you know, the, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Um, how, you know, they, they journeyed along and, you know, Christ opened up scripture to them. And, and their reflection was, wow, was not our heart burning within us as he opened up the word? And, you know, for me, that journey ride up to town every day was, was there. It's kind of my heart knew it to be true and real. And it just took my mind a lot longer to catch up. Yeah. So that's kind of how, how I came to faith. Yeah, great. A wonderful story. Um, uh, tell us about since then, how did you end up being called into ministry? Or how did you sense God saying, actually, I want you to give up all that work in finance and come and serve me full time in the church? How did that happen? Yeah, so I'd go along to the, uh, some of the lunchtime talks at St. Helens, and I remember at one of those particular talks, uh, sitting there, uh, and the chap at the front uh, said, look, you know, some of you are being called to preach and to teach. Uh, if that's you, don't hide. And I remember at that moment feeling like, wow, there's nobody else in the room except for me. You know, he's talking to me. Um, I thought, wow, that's a bit odd. Scribble it in the back of my uh, Bible. Uh, don't think anything more of it. And then a few weeks later, almost verbatim, the same thing happened. The guy was saying, you know, some of you have been called to teach and to preach. You know, don't hide. Oh, again, it was like I was the only person in the room. So I scribbled that in the back of my, di- in the back of my uh, Bible. And then over the next sort of uh, six to nine, you know, and I shared this with Karen, but not, not with anybody else. And over the next sort of six to nine months, the number of people, you know, uh, one of the ladies in our uh, home group, 
um, you know, took me to one side. I said, I don't know why, but I've got this bit of scripture saying, you've been call- you're being called, you're being called. I don't know what it means, but perhaps you do. Oh, my word, okay, write that down. Um, and, you know, my non-Christian friends uh, saying to me, you know, Sarp, have you thought about working in the church full time? So, you know, why would you say that to me? Um, you know, write it down. And, you know, there was just a whole series of people coming along and saying, have you, have you thought, have you considered? Um, and there was one particular moment where I was uh, in, in the city. I was, uh, it was lunchtime. I was heading back uh, to, to the office, uh, standing on the corner of Moorgate, and just seeing, uh, you know, standing there, just about to cross the road, and, and sensing God say to me at that place, look at all these people. Look at all these people who don't know who I am. Yeah, I want you to go. That's like, okay. You know, you, you know you're going to meet the Lord Jesus on that last day, and I don't want to be saying to him, I know you call me, but I really fancied staying working in the city. So it's like, okay, in obedience, I will follow where you call. Great. Thanks very much, Sarb. It's wonderful to hear that. Okay. Um, do take a seat, and I will look forward to you preaching to us uh, very shortly. Thanks very much. Wonderful to hear God's work, isn't it, in somebody's life. Let's come to the Lord in prayer now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the transforming work you've done in our lives by your spirit. You've breathed new life into us. You've caused us to be born again as your children. We thank you that you've made our bodies a living temple of the spirit. Thank you for the gifts of knowledge and wisdom and understanding that you've given us. We thank you that you've changed our hearts. We, you've removed those old desires And you replace them with a new desire to please you, to seek to do your will, and to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, we we thank you that you've sent us a spirit of courage, but we are sorry where we are still fearful, we're gripped by fear. We thank you that you've sent us a spirit of truth, but we're sorry where we still hold more firmly to the ways, the, the values of this world, rather than the teaching of your word. We thank you that you've sent us a spirit of healing. But we're sorry where we can't let go of our hurts. Forgive us, we pray, and fill us anew with your spirit. We thank you that he's our guide, and we do pray for those who have just moved home or are in the process of moving home, the Guthrie's, for for Jamie and Esther. And we pray also this morning for Fred and Laurence. We thank you for the time they've been part of this church family, for how much they feel they've benefited from being a part of a home group and the support they've received from them, the opportunities to grow in their faith and serve in different ways. And we, we do pray for them as they move on from here that you would go before them in this new stage in their lives. Help them to stay close to you and walk in step with your spirit as they find a, a new church family as they make new friends and meet new neighbours. Father, we pray for those who particularly need your comfort and strength at this time, to be reassured of your presence. Father, we pray for those we support in other parts of the world, and pray this morning for the Manga family. We thank you that they have been able to join the the mission organisation UFM, and for the support they are already receiving from them. Thank you for the encouragement of having a new supporting church in Basingstoke. Would you pray that the rest of their time and training here would be helpful for them? Pray for their preparation for returning to Senegal, for the practical things that need to be sorted, 
the timing of their return and for the, the vision that you've given them for their future ministry. Father, thank you for the opportunities that we all have to, to serve you and give towards your work. And we pray that you would accept our financial offerings as part of our worship. Pray they'll be used to enable the gospel to grow in this place and further afield. And we thank you for Saab and Karen's visit this morning, for your grace that has been at work in their lives. It's been great to hear just how you have uh, transformed Saab's life, how you've called him to ministry. And if it's your will that they come to serve you in this place, that we, we pray that you would make that clear to them and to us. So we pray for him as he comes up to preach shortly, that you would enable him to preach clearly and faithfully. And uh, with the power of your spirit, change our hearts and make us more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our Bible reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 4, the entire chapter. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result... They do not live the rest of their lives, their earthly lives, for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carouses, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, Love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is God's word. Thank you very much for reading for us. Before we come to the passage, let me uh, let me just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truths that it reveals. And Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts, unstop our ears, make us teachable, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as I was preparing for the talk uh, today, I was... Uh, uh, reminded of an apocryphal story of a young pianist, uh, a first-rate pianist. And this man gave his first concert at the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, at uh, the Royal Vestal Hall, excuse me. And his reputation preceded him. Uh, tickets for his concert were sold out in minutes. And on the day, he performed brilliantly. And when he'd finished the final piece, the crowd leapt to their feet, spontaneously shouting and cheering the young man. The young pianist, he bowed quickly and exited off to uh, one side of the stage. And the stage manager grabbed him and said, what are you doing? What are you doing? Go back and take a bow. They're yelling for you. The young man didn't move. Instead, he kind of peered through the curtain and said, no, 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 I, I I can't go out there. I can't go out there. And the stage manager was a bit across. And he said, look, they don't do this for everyone. Very rarely do they jump to their feet and applaud. Go out and enjoy it. Everyone is standing on their feet. And the young boy looked through the curtain again and he said, no, 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 I can't go because not everyone's standing. Stage manager's a bit shocked, so he has a look through and he notices that there's just one guy, an old guy sitting at the front who's not on his feet. And he says, well, don't worry about him, he's just one old guy. Everyone else is on their feet, out you go. And the young man turned around and said, that man is my mentor and my teacher. Only when he stands can I take a bow. The onlookers were all cheering and applauding his amazing skill and talent, but the musician knew he wasn't performing to the crowd of thousands. In fact, he was performing for an audience of just one. And Peter wants us to understand that we are doing our whole lives before an audience of just one. And that audience of one is God himself. And Peter's been setting out in his letter that as we live for God, that audience of one, that we will face challenges from a world that does not understand what we're doing. That we will face persecution and will be tempted to turn away from God. And Peter tells us that we are to live for that audience of one. But that we will only do this as well, we'll only do this well if we live in, an, in, a, um, in a fellowship of believers who also live just for that audience of one. And from our reading today, Peter tells us that to live well for God in the face of persecution, that we need three things. We need the right mindset, we need the right fellowship, and we need power. Mindset fellowship and power so firstly mindset in the face of suffering peter wants the churches then and us now 
to be wise, not to be Pollyannish, not to uh, think that uh, we should just look on the bright side and deny the prospect of suffering. Rather, he tells them and he tells us that persecution and suffering will come when we live truly for God. So how are we to keep going in the face of persecution? What is the Christian's mindset to be? To help get the right mindset, Peter sets uh, and gives us three instructions and a reason why we suffer for being a Christian. Firstly, he tells them, don't be surprised. Take a look at verse 12 with me. He writes this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised, says Peter. Now the word translated surprised here is a little weak. Uh, In the Greek it means don't be staggered, don't be astonished, be ready, because being ready for that challenge, the persecution, is more than half the battle. Uh, If we're at school and our friends want us to join in on an online attack of uh, one of the other children in the school, and we say, no, we're not going to do that, because as Christians we won't do that. Peter says, don't be surprised if you find yourself the receipt as receiving that uh, online harsh words yourself. Don't be astonished, don't be surprised, be ready. Secondly, he says, arm yourselves. Uh, Take a look at the first part of verse 1 with me. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now recognising that persecution will come, Peter calls us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as Christ. In 1 Peter 1.3.18, which Colin unpacked for us last week, we see that Christ's mind was set on the defeat of sin. And our way of thinking should be the same as Christ's. Christ's mind was set fully on the issue of sin, to suffer once for sins. That by living a life that fully met the demands of the law, a life without sin, that Jesus could pay the price of our rebellion, of our sin through his death on the cross. Now, having seen Jesus die for our sins, our mindset should be to want nothing more to do with sin. We should see sin as such a terrible thing. Seeing Christ's death, our response should be to want to put sin to death in our own lives. As Peter tells us in verse 1, he says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, this isn't saying that once we become a Christian or uh, have suffered, that sin no longer has any effect on us. No. Rather, when we become Christians, we're saying that we no longer want to live for the things that the world says that we should live for, fame, success, money. But what we want to do is we want to live for God, for that audience of one, and not for sin. We declare that we want to live the way that God calls us to live, not the way that the world thinks is right. And when we have that mindset, we have ceased from sin. That we would rather suffer 
for being a Christian rather than sin, that's what it means to have ceased from sin. We've had a complete change of mind. We've had a change in mindset. And our suffering gives us the assurance that we have indeed had that mindset change and we are living for God. Thirdly and briefly, uh, he says, be wise about why you suffer. Take a look at verse 15 with me. But let none of you suffer as a meddler, sorry, as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Peter is again, he's calling us to be good citizens. He's already spoken about this, hasn't he, in 1 Peter 2, telling us to be subject to authority, to be respectful, to be kind of heart. So here Peter's just reinforcing the point where society's rules don't conflict with God's, follow them. But don't suffer for being a bad citizen. And also don't suffer as a meddler or a busybody. Don't go about as the morality police upsetting people. If we do suffer for meddling, Peter says that's nothing for us to be proud of. So those are the three instructions that he's given us. Don't be surprised, arm yourselves, and suffer wisely. And then Peter tells us why we suffer for living as a Christian, so that we can make sense of it. Take a look at uh, verses 12 through 14. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In 1 Peter 1.7, uh, we're told that through trials our faith is being tested to reveal its genuineness. And it's a picture of being tested through fire to reveal, if you like, a precious metal. And here, Peter is again using that image of fire. Now, this is an image of a block of silver ore. Now, there's pure silver in that block of silver ore. But there's also all sorts of other stuff. There's lots of dross in there. And as you look at the lump of silver ore, you can't tell where the silver starts and where the silver ends. You can't tell where the dross starts and where the dross ends. And you can't just take a knife and skim away the outer surface to reveal the silver that's contained in there. It's all mixed up together. So to get the silver out, the only thing that you can do is to submit it to fire. There's no way to get the silver out without fire. And we're like that block of silver ore. There is within us the pure image of God. But there's also a lot of dross or sin. There are lots of things that are mixed up with our desire to live our lives for God. Our desires for personal advancement. Our desires to be seen as smart. Perhaps our desires for the best for our children. Or perhaps there's a hidden and besetting sin that gets in the way. And the only way to remove the dross is through a fiery trial. Now, what does that mean? 
On a nice warm day here in Long Crendon, when the sun is shining and all seems well in the world, we can easily say, yes, I live for Christ and my career is second. But what happens when you find yourself at work being put under pressure to fudge the numbers, fudge the figures, something that you know is wrong? You feel sure that if you don't do what's asked of you to fudge the figures, that you're going to lose your job and risk losing your home. You're at a fork in the road. Fudge the figures, and that shows that you're not living for God. Live for God and risk jeopardizing your home. You're in the fire. You're in the fire. And when in that fiery trial you choose to live for Christ, for the audience of one, you burn off some of that dross. You see, it's only in those fiery trials can the dross in our lives actually be burnt off. It's only in those fiery trials that we can know, truly know, if we're living for an audience of one or if we're living for ourselves. And it's only in the crucible, in that fiery trial, that the pure silver that's within us can be extracted. Only through the crucible will the image of God that's within us be revealed more and more and more clearly. And that's the reason for our rejoicing that Peter speaks of in verse 13. He says that through the sufferings, It's God's glory that is being revealed. So we rejoice not because we delight in suffering for the sake of it, but rather because through our sufferings, we reveal the glory of God. So having the mindset, the right mindset, is the start that we need to have. But we can only keep going with the right mindset in a fellowship of believers who also live for God. And that's our second point, the right fellowship. Now, the people who first received Peter's letter were drawn from a culture, uh, which is now modern-day Turkey. And before coming to Christ, they would have followed the ways and the practices of their culture, which Peter speaks of in verse 3. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. Being part of the family of God is a call away from the things of the world and a call into a new fellowship, a fellowship with new desires and new appetites, a new fellowship that's called to live for that audience of one. However, when we suffer individually for living for that audience of one, it has an impact on the whole church family. Think about how we are often tempted to respond in a season of trial in our own lives. We might become so distracted and consumed with our own troubles that we might stop praying. The weight of our suffering may be so hard to bear that we become less and less regular attending church or our own small groups. We might start to resent those people in our fellowship who don't appear to be suffering in the way that we are. 
And as our fiery trials really start to bite, we might become short-tempered, unkind in our words. And as we suffer, we might stop volunteering on church rotors because we just don't have the capacity to serve others because our hurt is just so great. And if Peter is right, and he is, as people in the fellowship start to be persecuted for their faith, if nothing is done, then cracks will appear across the whole body of believers. Harmony will go, people will start to drift away. And the work of building together the living stones that Peter's been talking about will be undone. So what are we to do? Well, Peter, thankfully, gives us three things in verses 8 through 11 to deal with this. Uh, Take a look with me. He says this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So firstly, he says, love one another earnestly. Now this isn't temporary, it's not saccharine sweet, it's not care at a distance, nor is it love when convenient. It's sacrificial, it's long term, it's a pouring out and it's costly. That's what it means to love earnestly. So when people in our fellowship who are being persecuted We find them maybe to be less friendly than usual, if they're sharp with their words, where they are unexpectedly absent from their duties. Those aren't the times for us to rebuke them, but to graciously respond and to help, to comfort and to support them, to pour on their wounds healing balm, to encourage them to keep going to keep living for that audience of one. Secondly, to offer hospitality without grumbling. Maybe like me, you found um, the last year difficult not being able to offer hospitality in your homes because of lockdown. But given the unwinding of COVID rules, we're able now to start to gather again, aren't we, in one another's homes. Offering and receiving hospitality is a fabulous way to really get to know one another well. So let me continue to encourage you to carry on inviting people that you don't know quite so well from the church fellowship to come around for tea and cake or dinner and mix it up. Invite people from the church fellowship who are at a different age and a different stage in life. Invite those who are single. Continue to open your homes and your lives to one another and do it joyfully, not with a hard heart. As Peter says, do it without grumbling. And thirdly, look to serve one another. What gifts do you have? Are you an encourager? Then encourage. If you're a gifted teacher, consider training to run a small group. Whatever we do, whatever gifts God has given us, he's given those gifts to us 
for the church family. Use them joyfully to serve one another. Now, if we're able to do this fully, we'd be a church family that knows just how valued every single member of the fellowship is to God. Christ died for them. We'd be a family that would be deliberate in getting to know one another. We'd be intentional in our service of one another. We'd want everyone in the church family who's being persecuted to finish the race well. And as we do that, we're glorifying God. But we can only fully do that if we continue to journey well with one another in our Christian walk. Now I'm sure you all remember this famous event. Uh, It's the 92 Barcelona Olympics. Uh, The GB runner there is Derek Redman and he was running in the 400 metres semi-final. In the back 200 metres of the race, uh, one of his hamstrings goes and he falls to the ground. The rest of the runners continue and finish the race. Through the pain, Redmond picks himself up and he starts to hobble in his lane towards the finish line. At about 100 metres out, Derek's father forces his way onto the track, puts his arm around his son and helps him to the finish line. Really moving. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if when we saw someone in the church family struggling under the weight of persecution, that we'd be so moved that we'd be like Derek's father, moving alongside, helping them towards the line. Wouldn't you want other people in the church family to care for you so deeply that they would do that for you? You may be sitting there now thinking, wow, that certainly sounds great, but I'm not sure I've got the endurance to do that or the strength to offer love to the fellowship like that. Where do I get the power to do that? And that brings us to our third point, the power. It's true. Uh, We can't have the mindset that's needed to live the life uh, of living through persecution in our own strength. It's true. We can't have that loving fellowship in our own strength. We need to bring the work of Christ on the cross into our hearts. Peter tells us in verse 18 that our rebellion against God is no small thing. It's not trivial. It's not something that God will simply wink an eye at and wave us into his presence. Peter writes this, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter tells us that the saving of people is no small thing. That the righteous is scarcely saved. Now, that doesn't mean that we're saved by the skin of our teeth or that it was a close shave. God only just about managed to do it. No, no. The Greek translated here scarcely means with great toil and with great difficulty. With great toil and difficulty. Our salvation was won by God through the most terrible of all sacrifices. The greatest toil, the most difficult thing. God sending his only son to die on a cross in our place. And if salvation is won, 
with such great toil, what can be said about those who don't trust in Christ? Peter asks the rhetorical question, what will happen to the ungodly and to the sinner? Peter's telling us that there is no other way that salvation can be achieved. Rejecting Christ in this life means being cast away from God's presence for all eternity. It's a truly terrible thought which should drive us to our knees in prayer and drive us out into the world in evangelism. So for those who do believe and trust in Christ, what does Peter say? In verse 1, Peter writes this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. And last week, as I said, Colin reminded us of 1.3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Peter tells us that through the suffering of Christ, through his death on the cross, that there was an amazing exchange. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus took the curse that we deserve so that we might be called a chosen race, a holy people. Jesus was cast out so that we might be brought in as God's treasured possession. On the cross, Jesus lost his inheritance as the Father turned his face away so that we might secure our inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, guarded in heaven by God for us. And that's what we need to see. That's what we need to dwell upon. The king laying down his crown to pick up our cross. And that's the truth that we need to allow the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit to set ablaze in our hearts. That's where the power to have the right mindset comes from. That's where the power to create a fellowship of believers that loves and cares for those who are being persecuted comes from. So three questions to close and to help us think about this. Firstly, do you know the scope of what the Father gave up for you in the breaking of Christ's body and the pouring out of his blood? Has that melted your heart? Secondly, are you able to glimpse what you've been rescued from? And has that humbled your heart? Do you know the scale of the promises that are now yours in Christ? And has that set your heart on fire? That's what we need to meditate on. That's where the power comes from. And as we do that, we'll be like the pianist I mentioned at the start, living only for an audience of one, neither seduced by the praise of the crowd, nor cowed by the shouts of the mob. We'll have the mindset that we need to live for God, and that will draw us to become a fellowship knit together in love. And as we do that, as we live for an audience of one, for God, we bring him great glory. So let me pray. My Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that we have in Christ. 
Our Father, I pray that you would uh, stir our hearts. Help us to see that uh, Christ suffered in the flesh. And that through that, we have received this amazing inheritance. Help us to marvel in that, to rejoice in that, and to be knit closer together as living stones. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been given a wonderful vision this morning of what it looks like to live for an audience of one, to have that right mindset, that right sense of fellowship with one another. And we don't uh, do that in our own strength, do we? We do it in the strength of the Lord. As Christ dies for us, we live in him. That's a wonderful reminder. And those words we sang at the end, they're a great reminder to know that if we do belong to Jesus, then there's nothing, no power of hell, no scheme of man that could ever pluck us from his hand. That until he returns or calls us home, we stand firm in the power of Christ. So let me finish again with his words from, from verse 11 as we go from here, going out to, to serve Christ in his strength. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.